Welcome to a special Mr. Charisma edition of Worldly. It's Yochi here with Jen and with Zach. Hey. Hi. And we're here because the day we all knew was coming has arrived. Rex Tillerson is out as Secretary of State. So today we're going to talk about what the Brexit actually means. What does it mean that Tillerson is no longer the top diplomat? And what does it mean that his successor is Mike Pompeo, their current head of the CIA, who is not known necessarily for being a diplomat, nor known always for telling the truth. But let's start with Tillerson. This is a guy who's had his ups and downs with Trump. They were never close. To put diplomatically, it's not great when your secretary of state calls a president a fucking moron, which uh, NBC News said Tillerson did last year. And just last week, you had Tillerson say this when he was asked about potential U.S. talks with North Korea. I don't know yet until we are able to meet ourselves face to face with uh, representatives of North Korea, whether the conditions are right to even begin thinking about negotiations. And so the very next day, Trump announced his plans to meet with North Korean officials, something he did apparently without consulting Tillerson. So, Zach, you wrote a piece for Vox.com with a subtle headline of he took the job and made it smaller, how Rex Tillerson failed the State Department and called him one of the worst secretaries of state in U.S. history. Why? It's really amazing the number of different ways that Tillerson has managed to screw things up royally. The first one is that he somehow failed to get in with the president at all. He insisted early on that he would meet with Trump a lot, right? But he ended up alienating Trump, not successfully persuading him to come around his point of view. So he wielded virtually no influence over key policy issues like North Korea or Russia or the Iran deal. Tillerson's voice was never really heard. And the second thing, and the thing that will really be his more consequential legacy— which I will say, well, one scholar told me it's a, it's a legacy that could last for a generation, is the way in which he has screwed up the State Department organizationally. 60% of the top leadership of, of the career State Department has left in under Tillerson's tenure. The number of people applying to be career foreign policy officers has declined by half. Huge swaths of political appointments have yet to be made, right? They don't even have anyone nominated for these major, really important decisions. There's no ambassador to South Korea. Tillerson has not only failed to get people in key positions, but he has alienated and undercut the bureaucracy, the people who work there forever, America's diplomats, who form the core of our ability to work and talk to other countries. This is irreplaceable talent that he's driven out. And with those people gone, the State Department, a husk, a, a shell of its former self, American diplomacy has been damaged in ways that are just not going to be obvious if you're sitting there and, and watching what's going on in Washington, but will have serious ramifications whenever we attempt to deal with a major problem. So I want to drill into the point you made at the outset of there's nothing more important for Secretary of State than the world believing that he speaks or she speaks for the president. That's so vital. And if it's not there, they just don't work. So Jen, there was this idea that people have used to try to comfort themselves that you have adults in the room is the phrase, that you had Tillerson. Jim Mattis at the Pentagon, H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, former generals, a former Exxon CEO, smart, sober people, and they would keep Trump from doing anything too crazy. So now you've got McMaster rumored to be on the way out. Tillerson has just been fired. So can we officially say that this adult in the room thing, which made us all feel good for a while, was too much to hope for when Trump's president? Yeah. If these were the adults in the room, then they're derelict in their parenting. Tillerson in particular, it's not just that his voice wasn't heard, it's that his voice was saying completely opposite things at any given time, like we heard in that clip, right? And it's not just, yeah, he tried to talk to Trump and say, you know, with the Iran deal, like he did try to push and to convince Trump 
unsuccessfully to recertify the deal, which Trump decided not to do. Or, you know, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Tillerson was on the side of saying that that's maybe not the best idea. So the idea was like a moderating voice, right? You had a voice of opposition. It didn't really seem to do a damn thing uh, and convince Trump to actually change his mind. But at least there was someone saying that stuff, right, theoretically. That's the problem with Pompeo, right? So we've seen with Pompeo, he kind of defends Trump at every turn. So you don't even have someone who's going to be kind of pushing back hard. So I want to stay for a second before we move to Pompeo. I I do want to stay for a second on Tillerson because— inclination matters, right? Like, it was good to have somebody whose thought process went the right way. And what was interesting to me was when he first was announced for this job, he was recommended by Bob Gates, the former defense secretary, who people in both parties of D.C. love, Condoleezza Rice, the former secretary of state, Steve Hadley, the former national security security advisor. So you had three people who are pretty widely respected, except by Jen, recommending Tillerson because they thought he is a diplomat of sorts. He's negotiated deals with world leaders from Russia to Africa to the Middle East, very tough countries, very tough people. So people thought he knows how to, A, run a big organization because he ran ExxonMobil with hundreds of thousands of employees, and B, knows how to negotiate and strike deals. And then none of that happened. To me, the most baffling part of the whole Tillerson era is why a person who has a skill set, we know he has these skills to do these things, didn't do it. And I don't know if that's because Trump just made clear he didn't want it or if that's because Tillerson didn't want to waste the time. But that's the mystery to me of Rex Tillerson. Well, my understanding is that he really alienated his base of power. When you have a cabinet-level official and you run a department in the U.S. government, your base are the people in that department. You need the people who know how to work Washington, the people who can act on your orders, and you need them to be listening to you and you need to empower them. And Tillerson was awful at that. He came in and he acted like a management consultant. Like, his job was to cut the State Department, to trim the fat, to lay off people. He pushed a plan at one point that would cut 8% of the department's staffing. And, like, that's that's nuts. The State Department is already underfunded compared to the Defense Department. U.S. diplomacy already, before Tillerson, was kind of weaker than it should be. And general after general had warned about this, too. They're like, we're the military has too much money. We need diplomats to help us do our job. And— Tillerson didn't – he didn't know about any of this. He was never an expert on the national security and foreign policy bureaucracy. And that, I think, prevented him from being able to do any of the other things that are important about this job. You can't negotiate a deal. You can't have influence with the president unless you have a lot of people who are helping you build up your own influence and and lay the groundwork for major foreign policy. But even if you want to cut the fat, right? Like, ostensibly, you could probably look at the State Department bureaucracy and think, yeah, there are some programs that are maybe, like, redundant or, you know, no longer necessary – However, you don't trim the fat by maybe not having a North Korea, uh, a South Korea ambassador or, you know, top positions in the biggest, most critical foreign policy issues that we're currently facing. We're literally talking about Trump sitting down with Kim Jong-un to discuss North Korea's nuclear program. And we don't even have top people in those positions who would handle the like nitty gritty actual details of diplomacy that you need. So it wasn't like he was trimming the fat in a very kind of, oh, boo, you know, we're getting mad because people who have these cushy government jobs are losing their jobs. It's literally critical positions that he didn't fill. So even a management consultant, even if he were that, he's really bad at that. And so let's turn for a second now to Mike Pompeo, the likely next Secretary of State, the current CIA director, who has been willing to repeat one of the Trump administration's biggest lies about the Russia probe So here's an example. Last October, 
an NBC News reporter at a think tank event here in Washington, asked Pompeo about what the U.S. intelligence community believes about what Russia did in the 2016 election. Can you say with absolute certainty that the election results were not skewed as a result of Russian interference? And here's what Pompeo said in return. Yes, the intelligence community's assessment is that the Russian meddling that took place did not affect the outcome of the election. The problem is that that's not what the intelligence assessment actually said. Right. They didn't say that it did or didn't. They very explicitly did not weigh in on that point. That's a subtle distinction, but it's really important because the intelligence community basically said, we are not going to weigh in. We are not going to say, yes, it skewed the results one way or it didn't. But he is saying definitively it didn't. That is false. That is not accurate. That is not an accurate representation of the intelligence community assessment. As director of CIA, he is not director of all the intelligence agencies, but he is director of CIA. Um, And he's misrepresenting the findings of the intelligence community to the public. That's a problem. This is why Trump likes him, right? Is Pompeo, unlike previous CIA directors who tried to maintain a low profile for the most part, he's been out there on the Sunday shows and various other different media outlets defending Trump, taking, acting like a political surrogate. And that that makes sense, right? Pompeo was a Republican congressman before he got appointed to this job. He aced the biggest hiring test in the Trump administration, which is, are you willing to be subservient on national television? It's interesting because CIA directors tend to come from one of two backgrounds. Either they are politicians, so Mike Pompeo being a good example of it, Leon Panetta, who served under President Obama, who I'll come back to in a second, another, or they're people like David Petraeus, who have sort of military backgrounds or or backgrounds that are not quite in politics. It's interesting, I think, to compare Pompeo to Leon Panetta. Leon Panetta had been chief of staff in the Clinton White House. He was somebody that Obama had very close ties to. He was one of Obama's CIA directors. And what was interesting about him was— When a new director comes in, a question always asked internally within the CIA is, will this person defend us? If we come under attack by a president, as they always do, it's not new with Trump, will they defend us? And Panetta earned a huge amount of respect. I was covering this at the time from rank-and-file CIA because he came in and defended the CIA against Obama and against Nancy Pelosi. The CIA was taking huge, huge numbers of outside criticism about torture, about other major mess-ups, and Panetta came in and, and defended the agency. And that bought him credibility And so Pompeo comes in, you have a House Intelligence Committee report come out that takes direct aim at the central intelligence agencies and the intelligence community's assessment about Russia, a core part of it. It takes direct aim at that. Pompeo gives no sign that he's the kind of person who would actually defend the agency. And with a politician coming in, that's a big, big problem. And being the lead diplomat requires being er, diplomatic. Pompeo has said many things in the past that are not diplomatic. He has a long history of association, particularly with anti-Muslim organizations. At one point, he did an interview with Frank Gaffney, who's a conspiracy theorist, essentially, about Islam and Muslims, in which Pompeo said that radical Islamist organizations had infiltrated the town of Coldwater, Kansas, and many other small towns throughout America. Now, imagine this guy sitting down with the leadership of various different Muslim countries— and trying to hammer out U.S. foreign policy and make delicate statements about the role of Islam in world politics. It, it's tough. It's really hard for me to imagine. But, you know, Jen, the timing of this is really interesting, right? Because you have Trump announced plans to meet with North Korea. You have that being done without really talking to Tillerson. You've got this major, major historic meeting, if it happens, looming around the corner, and you've got the shakeup. It's clearly not coincidental that you have these talks announced and then 
Trump fire Tillerson, but what does it mean, do you think, about North Korea? Like, what does this tell us about how those talks may go, how the summit might go when Trump fires one guy and replaces him with Mike Pompeo? Hell if I know, um, is the short answer. No, more seriously, I think it's indicative of the kind of chaos, right? We do know that Tillerson was kind of more pro-talking to North Korea. Trump publicly undercut him. So in that sense, having Pompeo at least understand the president's thinking ostensibly um, and have the president's ear, theoretically, will be able to better coordinate message at the very least. You know, he might think to actually call Pompeo and be like, hey, by the way, this is this is our policy, where it doesn't seem like Rex was even in any way like informed of what's going on. So there is that. But they said by May that they would have the meeting with Kim Jong-un, right? So that's a really condensed timeline to be able to figure this out and to get people in place, staffed up, confirmed, all that stuff. And now we're having a shakeup just right now. So it's really just kind of further indicative of the chaos of the lack of kind of broader strategic thinking. The other way of reading this is it's less chaos and more Trump trying to have people around him that he trusts and who speak for him ahead of whether it's a good idea or a terrible idea would be without question a historic summit and a very dangerous one. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that you take a secretary of state who you don't trust, you don't like, who doesn't speak for you, put in one who you do trust, you do like, has had daily interaction with U.S. intelligence that a secretary of state who has same access but probably doesn't see in quite the same way, put him in the job. It doesn't strike me as a catastrophic decision. The timing is compressed. They're saying the confirmation hearing for him as secretary of state would be April the summit sometime before the end of May. So it's not very much time, but I don't think replacing a person you don't like or trust with someone you do like and trust is inherently a sign of chaos or a bad decision. Yeah, I guess my issue is more the kind of person that Trump trusts. If he had replaced Rex Tillerson with you know a sober, bipartisan, competent diplomat, that would be one thing. But a congressman known for extreme views and known for being willing to defend Trump and twist intelligence, that that bothers me. It, it, really, there's this guy is being treated as normal because he's been CIA director and he's been less outlandish in his statements than the president has. But that doesn't mean he should be considered just another typical intelligence bureaucrat. He is really out there. And in a way that we sort of passively tolerate with this administration, but in reality, should raise some serious questions. And Jenny, I guess let's end here because it's a point that you nodded at a little bit earlier. At the end of the day, better to have a secretary of state whose instincts may have been right and who were saying the right things but wasn't listened to, or one who will be listened to but whose instincts are shaky, to be very diplomatic. <laughs> to be diplomatic. Uh, if only all of them could See be. what I did there? Yeah, I like it. I mean, Tillerson was by any measure an absolute failure, it, no matter what you're looking at, whether it's, you know, the actual way of managing the bureaucracy or actually conducting U.S. diplomacy. He was, uh, it became a laughing stock. We've been laughing for a while. You can only kind of go up from there, I guess. So I would say, you know, potentially this could be better. Pompeo has Trump's ear and theoretically will be speaking with the president's voice. That alone has to be a massive improvement. You could tell it's something amazing like the Brexit when it brings out Jen's often hidden, optimistic, glass half full side. So thanks, Rex. It doesn't happen often. We will miss Mr. Charisma. He's been a, a longtime friend of the show and somebody we've we've had fun talking about. But his voice is gone. And the question we'll be all looking out for now is we have a new Secretary of State who is listened to. And we'll be looking at what it is that he says, what it is that he does now that Mr. Charisma has exited. Jen, Zach, thanks for doing this special one. Be with all of you again at normal time on Thursday.